Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Well, I invite you to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3, as we continue in our series through this letter to the church in the city of Colossae from the Apostle Paul. We have two messages left in this series, believe it or not. Um, So we're almost to the end, and we have a lot to do this morning, so we're going to jump right in, okay? So Colossians chapter 3, starting in uh, verse 15, let's read this together. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So as I said, a lot to get to this morning. And so we're praying that God's gonna give us grace as we work through this together, but we're working through relationships. But we're working through relationships in the context of this letter to this church at Colossae, and by extension, to the church here at Bible Center. And so we don't jettison everything that we've talked about up till now and drop in and pull this out and kind of make it say what we want it to say. It lives in the context of this letter that Paul has written. The basis of this letter that Paul has written is Jesus. Pulls everything back to Jesus. And so the content, the the basis, the point of what we're going to get to again today is Jesus. And so I got three things for you as we move through this section of this letter. Number one, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. Maybe you've heard that phrase before in life. Maybe you've heard that phrase related to something that you're going through. But the struggle is real. There's this concept that exists in our country called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. This actually goes back to the 1800s. There was a French philosopher, I'm gonna wow you for a second, but there was a French philosopher named Tocqueville who came to America in the 1830s. And he studied democracy. He was looking at America and how we were set up and the society that we had and the strengths and the weaknesses that were inherent in democracy, and he identified a lot of strengths, a lot of strengths, many of those that we enjoy today, but he identified one particular weakness, and he would like to take credit for the word individualism. And he identified this word, this concept, 
as the inherent weakness to the way our society was set up. And this was in the 1830s, individualism. Fast forward to the 1980s. And there was a guy by the name of Robert Bella who did a study, a five-year study. He's a sociologist, did a five-year study on our country and people in our country and the way we're designed and the way we think and all of those types of things. And he has all kinds of stats. And this, this, he wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. It kind of diagnosed what was going on in our country back in the 1980s. And he coined this term, expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. It was building off of Tocqueville's original study. It was trying to diagnose the way people think in this country. What are we dealing with? If you remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about how the Colossians were dealing with a couple different heresies. They were dealing with a couple different strains of thought that were kind of diluting or adding to the gospel. And so they were being pulled in various ways. And so in our country, there's a strain of thought that we struggle with when it comes to the gospel being center. And it's this idea of expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, according to Robert Bella, he says this in his book, Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. A few years later in 2021, Carl Truman did a study on this and he further defines it this way. Expressive individualism holds that human beings are defined by their individual psychological core and that the purpose of life, you catch that? The purpose of life is allowing that core to find social expression in relationships and anything that challenges it is deemed oppressive. Sound familiar to you? It can be summed up in this way, kind of a compilation of people who have, who have sought to bring some further definition to it. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. That is expressive individualism. And so when we come to a passage like this, we carry this in the background because it swims in the culture of where we live, in our society, in the way that we live. And if you think about it, it's part of our language now. It's the my truth concept. It's to it's to do what makes you happy. Find the real you. All of those types of phrases that we, that we use here in our country now and that you hear over and over and over again, they all come back to this mindset that the purpose of life at its very core is to discover who I am and to allow that to authentically come through to express my individuality. The Bible would say something different. 
Point number two, radical self-denial. So we move from expressive self-individualism to this concept that we've been reading as we've been moving through the book of Colossians, and that is this concept of radical self-denial. One says the purpose of life is for me to, to shine through, and the other says Jesus. The purpose of life is for Jesus to shine through. One says it's, it's I'm to become the best version of me that I can become, and the other says, I'm to become the best version of Jesus that I can become. Radical self-denial. Look at verse 15 of Colossians 3. He says, and let the peace of Christ, let the peace of Christ, not your own peace, not the way you are searching for peace, not realizing your own truth, but let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts. The peace of Christ rule your hearts and be thankful. Look, look at verse 16. And let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. Not my own idea, not my own concept, not my own truth, but let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. There is a truth and it's God's truth. And we are to let that dwell among us, not our own version of that truth. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitudes in your heart. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Not everything in the, my name, not everything in the way that I want to live or the, the, the way I think that society should be shaped or how I, I should look at this thing, but in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's a centering principle that we come back to over and over and over throughout the book of Colossians that Paul continues to draw us back to. He says, the middle is Jesus. The way is Jesus. Life is Jesus. And to find that way means that I deny myself, not that I express myself, but I'm looking for Christ, I'm dwelling in Christ. I get peace from Christ. It all extends, it all emanates from him, from him. But here's the thing, we struggle with that. If we're honest, we struggle with that. I struggle with that. You struggle with that. And it's this constant tension in our life between the two, between self-actualization or this individuality thing that I'm, I need to be the best version of me and this self-denial that I'm to become like Christ, not like me. It's becoming more like me or becoming more like Jesus. It marks the moments of our lives. And we carry this concept into the relationships that we have. And so, as I said before, Paul's not just dropping this list of things in the middle of nothing. He's continuing his letter and the theme of his, his letter. And he's saying, you are going to carry all of the things that Mike talked about last week. You're going to carry those things, the list of put to death and the list to put on. You're going to carry those things 
into your relationships. You're gonna live in this tension in your relationships. It plays out in how we treat our relationships. Our relationships then actually serve me and my own individuality, or they serve Christ. It's one of the two. They're centered on me or they're centered on Christ. And so let's look at the relationships that Paul chooses to illustrate this with. This tension and how we bring our own ideas into these relationships and what it looks like for these relationships to be centered on Christ. Number two, transformed relationships. Transformed relationships. The first thought there is that individualism serves me and uses others. Individualism serves me, this train of thought, this this way our society thinks, it serves me and it uses others. In this context that Paul was writing in this era, there was a huge distortion in the relationships that he chooses to highlight. They were way out of whack. And there were three of them that he chooses to highlight. It's, it's marriage, and then there's family, and then there's slavery. Three unique relationships that he chooses to illustrate his point of this tension that's going on in our relationships. And all of these comments that he makes here in this passage would have been against the grain of the culture in which he lived. Totally against the grain. And I want you to see a few things that as I'm studying this this week that kind of hit me is these are the things that Paul is doing as he's talking about these relationships. So the first thing we're gonna do is kind of go big picture over all of them. What are some things that stand out about how he's addressing us through these relationships? First thing, is he speaks to people who both have power and don't have power. He's speaking to both parties. So if you think about it, in, in each case, he speaks to the person who does not have power first, and then he speaks to the person who does have power second. And so in that culture, wives basically had no rights. They had no rights. The, the right was with the husband. There was lots of abuse that took place, wives were treated maybe just a little bit better than personal property. But there was this disparity between a husband and a wife when it came to power. The husband had all of it and the wife had nothing. And so Paul, as he's speaking, he's speaking to a group of people who had this disparity, the same thing when it came to fathers and children. The head of the household was the ruler and no one else in the house had rights. So when he's speaking to fathers and children, he's speaking to this power dynamic that was very different, slaves and masters. There was a huge disparity in the power dynamic between slaves and masters, but he speaks to both parties. Paul speaks to both parties. Second thing that we see here is he doesn't speak to the system, but he speaks to the people who are in the system. You don't see him railing about the laws for marriage. 
that existed in Rome at the time. He's not railing about that. He's speaking to husbands and he's speaking to wives. You don't see him railing about the evils of slavery. He's speaking to slaves and he's speaking to masters. He's speaking to the people, not to the system. But then what do you notice? As there's this power dynamic, this difference in the power dynamic where he speaks to wives and then he speaks to husbands, what does he do? He brings equality to both. He brings equality to both. He reaches down and he pulls up the one who has no power. But get this, get this. He does not diminish the value of the one who does. So many times in our life and in our society, for us to value one person, we have to devalue the other. And we treat it like a set of scales. Where if I'm gonna value this person, I have to devalue this person. Paul says, no, I'm gonna value both of them because they are both important. They are both equal. And they both matter to God. And so he brings value to both parties. And this would have been radical in that day. And in many ways, it's radical today. But then the last thing that we see that he does all the way through this passage, that he continually, he centers everything in these relationships on Jesus. He continually centers everything in this relationship on Jesus. And as we read through this again, you're going to see over and over and over again that it comes back to Christ. The middle of these relationships, the power of these relationships is Christ. So let's look at that. The second thing that we see here is that Jesus-centeredness serves others and changes me. Jesus-centeredness serves others and changes me. This is not a full message on marriage. We don't have time to do the, the whole thing on marriage. We're gonna hit that again this spring in our series where we'll have an entire weekend dedicated to family and marriage. But as we go through this, I wanna highlight just a few things that are true about marriages. So let's look at verse 18. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Just a few comments as we begin our journey together, talking about things like this and talking about things like marriage. The first thing is marriage is God's idea. It was his invention. It was his creation. It was his design. It was intentional all the way back from creation. At the very beginning in Genesis chapter two, we see God's design for marriage, his intentionality with marriage. It's his idea. It's his gift to Humanity, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a hard thing. But it's glorious. And it was designed by our creator. The design for marriage is husband and wife. You see this throughout scripture explicitly where we're told that in Genesis chapter two, explicitly we're told that. And then you see it in passages like this where it's implied. As it's addressed to wives with your husbands and husbands with your wives. There's an explicit command throughout scripture and there's an implicit guide throughout scripture. Husband and wife is God's design for marriage. 
The design for marriage is a husband and wife who are both followers of Jesus, who are willing to submit their life to the leadership of Jesus and to live under his counsel and his guidance and his law and his design for marriage. Two people, husband and wife, who are willing to live under Christ, to submit to Christ as Lord of their life for their entire life. That's God's design. The design for marriage, the purpose for marriage is for it to be a picture of the gospel to the world around us. And in some ways, it's the deepest picture of the gospel that we've been given. And when it flourishes, it showcases Jesus. And when it struggles, it showcases Jesus. It's a picture of the gospel to the world around us. We all struggle with marriage. Maybe you find yourself struggling with the basic belief system of who it's for. Maybe that's something that you wrestle with about what God's word says about marriage. Maybe you struggle with the basic design because it would lead you to some type of sacrifice. We struggle. Maybe you've got struggle in your past and it's led to separation or divorce or deep hurt in your life. We struggle. Maybe you've witnessed struggle from your own parents and you have scars to this day that you carry because of what you've seen and what you've lived through. We all struggle. Maybe you're working to live it out. Every day right now is just so hard. Because we all struggle. We struggle. I struggle. I've been married for 23 years, which is crazy to say out loud. I think that just means old. There have been lots and lots of moments of struggle. There was one time we were living in California, which had its own thing. We were away from everybody, away from family, and it's kind of a plane ride from anybody. It felt like we were in a different country sometimes. And I can tell you what the room looked like, where I was standing. When I yelled out, just leave. Just leave. And praise the Lord she didn't. but we all struggle with this beautiful, wonderful, impossible, hard, difficult thing called marriage. So what do we do when we struggle? We love people and we point them to Jesus. 
just like we do with anything else. We love people and we point them to Jesus because Jesus is the one who transforms. It's not me who transforms. It's not you who transforms. Just like we've talked about through this entire letter, it's Jesus who transforms. So we love people and we point them to Jesus knowing Jesus is the one who can change our heart. Jesus is the one who can give us strength. Jesus is the one who can keep us on the way. So we point them to Jesus. We point me to Jesus over and over and over again. As we struggle together, we point people to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Submit to Jesus, live for Jesus, struggle, but make Jesus the center. Make that be the struggle. Society is distorted. These principles, these biblical principles to mean the other exists to serve me, to complete me, to fulfill my desire, to satisfy my needs. And so some of us bail because we can't get that out of another person. And once we're married to another person, we realize that. We weren't designed to do that for you. But then some of us, we never even enter into the relationship because why start? It's not gonna bring out the best in me anyway. And so I'm not gonna give myself to that. Society has distorted this so much. Let's look back at the text. First here, Paul is encouraging wives to make the choice to submit to their husbands. And he, he qualifies it this way. He says, as is fitting in the Lord. And that's a qualification that lives in the lives of believers all across everything. As is fitting in the Lord. When it doesn't go against what God is teaching us to do. I make the choice. He's encouraging husbands to love. It's the word agape. It's this giving up, this self-sacrificing type of love. And in Ephesians, he even takes it further. And he says, as Christ loved the church, this is this deep love, this deep love. He says, give yourself up without bitterness. Man, that hit me in the soul this week. Whew. It was reading my mail. Like when I don't get what I want, what do I do? I turn bitter. I turn bitter. And so he's saying, love and do it without bitterness. Even when you don't get what you want, even when your needs, quote unquote, aren't met, even when they're not satisfying everything that you think they should be satisfying, you love You love. There's this moral judgment to, as is fitting to the Lord. Let me say this, just as a, if you're in a relationship where God's word is being twisted and it results in abuse, That is not okay. We're here, we love you and we wanna help. Come and talk to me, come and find me. 
That is not okay. Because the relationship that's being described here in the Bible is this reciprocal giving and giving relationship. It's giving and giving. It's not giving and taking. It's giving and giving. And when both parties are giving and giving, then this marriage flourishes. But when there's this power dynamic that gets out of whack, now you result in this abusive relationship where it resembles what's here, but it's not actually biblical. And so know you're loved and know there's help. I'm reading a book right now that's just titled Get Married. I love that title. There's a lot of new stats that are coming out. We're going to talk about these as we go through the spring, but there's a lot of new stats and and discovery that's coming out about marriage, but I'll give you just a little bit about it from here. This is Brad Wilcox. He says, faith is the strongest predictor of marital quality. When compared to other factors like ideology, education, race, and income, perhaps most inconsistent with the cultural narrative is the finding that women who regularly attend attend church are about 50% less likely to divorce. But that's not all. Religious men are less likely to be unfaithful or use pornography, more, more likely to talk about guardrails, erect fences to protect their marriage, and especially likely to receive top marks from their wives for provision and attentiveness. Marriage, when it's following biblical principles, is actually flourishing even in our country. It's flourishing. It's the biggest predictor of, quote, happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment. It's almost like there was a designer who said, do it this way. And when you do it this way, it's going to lead you to the place that you want to be. Marriage is beautiful. More later. More later. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. A few things from this, just quick hits. Parents are given as the chief disciple makers of their kid. It's your responsibility. Once you have a child, you are their chief disciple maker. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. That's why we have a community called the church. But you are given to children as the chief disciple makers. You're given as protectors. You're given as caregivers. You're given as guides. Obedience to parents is pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God. It also teaches us how to obey. Part of discipling, part of becoming a disciple is that we learn how to obey, even when I don't think it's right, or even when I don't like it, or even when I don't understand it. I learn how to obey because part of following Jesus is this willingness to obey. And so parents, you play a role in that. And children, you play a role in that by learning to obey. Too many parents in our culture try to be life coaches for kids. There is a shifting relationship as your kids get older. There's a changing relationship that we're gonna talk about. Over time, it shifts. But obedience is a learned quality that we need in our life. We need to understand and know how to do that. Fathers in this case, because of that relationship, that patriarchal relationship, they're encouraged not to exasperate. Again, another one, just an arrow. Not to exasperate 
to nurture and care for. Verse 22, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Our tendency is to read this passage and to soften it some. And there are principles here that can apply to employer and employee, and we can, we can go that route. But Paul was speaking into a, a distinct culture, and in this culture, it's estimated that around 30% of the people who lived in Rome in the day that Paul was writing this letter were living in slavery. So when he was writing this letter, he was writing to people who would have read it and said, that's me. And in our Western world and in our country in particular, we have an evil history when it comes to slavery. But that just is not just America. That has extended worldwide. Today, in the world, there are approximately 50 million people who are living in slavery. If you go to North Korea, it's one in 10. And it looks different. It's in different ways. Some of it's forced marriage. Some of it's trafficking. It's various levels. The same thing existed in Rome, various levels of slavery. But Paul is speaking into a group of people who would have felt this in their soul. And I want to say to you, this is how much the gospel can change people. Because we might look at husband and wife in that culture, we might say there was a disparity, but to look at slave and master, there was a huge disparity. And Paul in his words is bringing the slave, the property, and he's saying they're equal in the eyes of Christ. So he says, slaves, you have an opportunity to show Jesus to the world by the way you conduct yourself. And masters, you have an opportunity to show Jesus to the, to the world the way you conduct yourself. And in fact, later next week, we're gonna look at this, but in, in chapter four, verse nine, he says this, he is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Onesimus was a slave who had escaped from Philemon. Paul wrote a letter to Philemon. He says this in verse Eight of Philemon. He says, For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you, Philemon, to do what is right, instead, I appeal to you on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son, this escaped slave, Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and me. And this whole letter to Philemon is advocating that Philemon receives Onesimus as a brother. It's the power of the gospel. It's what Jesus does in the hearts of people as he transforms them that no system can do. Systems change as people change. So Paul appeals to the heart. Jesus with his disciples, with this we close in Mark chapter 10. 
talking to his disciples about where they're gonna sit when it comes to the kingdom. It says this in 41, when the 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants. This power struggle, this power dynamic. When you're given power, we act as tyrants. We lord it over people. But catch this, verse 43, Jesus says, but it is not so among you. It is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever in the kingdom wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the son of man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the kingdom, people live with gospel dependence. We don't live with power dependence. We don't live with self-individual dependence. We live dependent on Christ. He's the center of our relationships. He's the one that transforms our hearts. He's the one that works in our lives and he's the one that we struggle toward. Tim Keller said it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. There's no doubt that you and I have failed in relationships. Maybe some of you this morning will put your hand up and say, I'm failing in relationships. It's a struggle. You failed in the put to death list. When you read that, you're like, man, I just can't seem to put it to death. You failed in the put on list. When you read that, it's just like, man, I just. But here's the thing. Just like Paul in his letter, he brought value to the powerful and he brought value to the powerless and he brought equality to both. The reason Jesus came to this planet was to reach down and to pull you up. Because you couldn't do it and I couldn't do it and you can't do it, and I can't do it. So the center of everything in our life is Christ, because he's the only one who can reach down and pull us up. He's the one who gives us value. It comes from him. He's the one who gives us purpose. He's the one who gives us a reason to live. He's the one that gives us the gift of relationships. It's all from him. So when we struggle in relationships, 
we don't lean harder into a list of things. We lean harder into Jesus. We run to him over and over and over again. And we love people and we point them to Jesus because he is the one. He's it. He's the hope. Can we pray together? God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you've done. We praise you for Jesus and that it all comes back to him. I pray freedom in this place. I pray for those who are struggling this morning that you'd be with them. That you would help them run to you. That you give us the power, that you'd give us the courage, that you'd give us the boldness to run to you. And that you would give us the, the power to come alongside others and to point them to you. That you would make us a church that struggles along, aware of our need for Christ and totally dependent on him. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.